uh, something of my own personal struggle, and it's this. My life is surrounded with clutter and mess. The surfaces around me, my desk at work, my bedside chair, my, the surfaces that I have domain over, basically accumulate books and pieces of paper and other detritus from my life. And I don't know whether I just think that I might need it later, so I just put it there. And it builds and builds and builds around me, a complete clutter. And of course, I struggle to find things for that reason. And I don't know whether you're like that, but um, I, I find I watch these TV shows like... Um, what's, that, what's that show where... Uh, the architect show, but they do these finished houses and you look into these houses and every surface is clean. Things are all put away. Uh, it's as if no human being ever lives there. And, and there's a part of you that goes, oh, wouldn't that be nice? I, I yearn to live in a clutter-free, mess-free life. Well, I had an exciting moment in 2019 and there was a spark of hope a guru promised to transform my life. Her name, Marie Kondo. She's a Japanese organizing consultant. Who knew? Who knew there was such a thing? And, and she has the, is the author of a best-selling book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. This woman is a genius. She's made millions out of this idea of tidying up. Who'd have thought? That was a business idea. I, you know, but there were... And I watched a TV show on Netflix called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. It was fascinating. She went into houses full of clutter and mess, and she taught them the Marie method. It was, it was inspirational. It was transformational. It set a new fire within me. I went up to my bedroom. I threw all my clothes on the bed. I just, I just kept the ones that, made me, that gave me joy. <laughs> and, and I folded... And I put things in drawers in a, in a unique way so I could see what was there. Oh, it was so exciting. Finally, the life of mess and clutter was over in one decisive transformational moment. Except it didn't. And um, after initial enthusiasm, the clutter has returned. Well, that's true. But in some ways, I also feel the same about sin and temptation in my life. I want to be unselfish. I want to be gentle. But actually, I find that the instantaneous thought in any situation that affects me, my first thought is, what will suit me best? And actually, when I'm getting a bit tired and stressed, so quickly irritable words and sharp words come flying out of my mouth to the people around me. I long for my struggle with sin and temptation to be conquered. Is there a way of de-sinning your life? Down through Christian history, and you'll find in every generation, you will meet people who will basically teach that it is possible to have a crisis experience 
where you can decisively change from a state of carnality to a state of a victorious spiritual life. Uh, some method or some series of steps or a form of teaching where you can learn from the holiness gurus and uh, you can attend the right conventions, go to the right conferences and perhaps experience a spiritual breakthrough. Perhaps, I don't know, you maybe start speaking in tongues or something dramatic will happen and, and suddenly if you let go and let God in a great moment of consecration and final surrender, you'll move to a new state where Temptation and sin no longer troubles you in the same way. Down through history, there have been movements that have taught such things. And of course, it is very attractive, isn't it? What an attractive thought if there was just one moment where it could be conquered and dealt with. What is the normal Christian life supposed to look like? Well, what does God have to say to us? Well, please open your Bibles back up to Romans chapter 7. And you'll find that on page 1134. We've been working through this letter. And uh, this is where we've got to this morning. Romans chapter 7. There's been a lot of debate about these particular verses. A lot of effort exploring different options of who the I is. Is Paul writing in a literary way, in a representative way for Adam, for Israel? Or is this Paul, uh, before he was a Christian, uh, on the cusp of about to become a Christian, or as a Christian? Um, is this describing a carnal, worldly Christian who has yet to go through some crisis experience and then move to the sunny uplands of Romans chapter 8, where the, the fight with sin will be over. All of these different views you, you can find out there, uh, you can read in the commentaries. Uh, you, you will see that fine Christians have come to different views on this. I mean, you can understand as you read this chapter, can't you? Some of the verses sound like the sort of thing a Christian would say. Uh, look at the second half of verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is good. Or verse 22, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But then there's other statements you think, well, can that really be a description of a Christian? Uh, verse 14, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Twice in these verses, in verse 17 and 20, describes sin living in me. Verse 23 describes being a prisoner uh, to the law of sin. Verse 25, a slave to the law of sin. Now, as I say, I'm not going to lay out all the options, uh, but where I've landed in my studies on this is I find myself, I'm more in line with the thinking of Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, and John Piper. So I feel in safe territory this morning. Here are a few observations that um, shape my thinking on this. I think the most natural reading of these verses is that Paul is describing his own experience. The personal pronoun, I, runs right through this chapter. And while in, in verses 7 to 13 describes past experiences, there's a major shift of tense from verse 14 onwards where he talks about his a present experience. 
Take a look at verse 14, which seems to be a banner statement over this little section. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Now, whenever you're reading the Bible, you should ask questions like this. When he says we, who does he mean? Well, have a think. Who do you think he means? When he says we. Well, surely it must mean the Christians in Rome and him as the Apostle Paul. We know that the law is spiritual. And then he says, but I am unspiritual. And so if you use the normal rules of reading, then surely in the same sentence it must follow that the I is the Apostle Paul himself as a Christian who says this. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So when that makes you scratch your head, doesn't it think, well, how could this statement be true of the Apostle Paul, this language of sold as a slave to sin? Uh, The word unspiritual in the original language, it has a sense of fleshly. Uh, Will Timmins, who's a more college lecturer where I uh, used to attend, uh, he has a very helpful article where he, he just expresses that that phrase, sold as a slave to sin, doesn't so much qualify the I as the unspiritual or fleshly bit. And so Paul is, is not saying that his whole identity could be described as being sold as a slave to sin. Back in chapter 6, he's already made the point that since our lives are linked to Christ, that in one sense we are no longer slaves to sin. But I think he is repeating the same point of chapter 6. That even though we're united to Christ, we still live in these bodies that are corrupted by our sinful nature. This is the essence of our fleshy lives, that we're infected by the virus of sin. If you look back at chapter 6, verse 6. For we know... That our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. And we saw the point of that is that actually the, the cruel slave master of sin, his power has been defeated as our lives have been united to Christ. We no longer have to jump when he says jump. The purpose of of our lives linking to Christ is that actually um, the penalty of sin for the past is paid. And as we die with Christ in his death, the power, the enslaving power of sin is broken. But actually, while we're still in these fleshy bodies, we still experience the presence of sin. That is still part of our story. We are still struggling with these sin-infected bodies. Now, there's some important things to say about this. Number one is it's important to realize we're not saying it's your physical body that's the problem. It's not that you've got flesh and blood. It's not that you've got 
bodily appetites. It's not that you experience hunger or thirst or the desire to be loved or, or experience sexual attraction. That's not the problem. It's not the physicality of our bodies. God gave us these physical bodies. And everything good is to be enjoyed. There's a way of enjoying all these things in a way that is holy, in a way that pleases God, in a way that glorifies God. So the problem is not our, our, us being, having physical bodies and physical appetites. And so consequently, it's important to realize that the solution to dealing with sin and temptation has nothing to do with treating our physical bodies harshly. Down through Christendom, People have developed some very strange notions where they think the way of dealing with sin is to whip yourself or cut yourself or deprive your physical body in some way. And the Bible says that none of that works at all. Cold showers may be very invigorating, but they're not going to deal with the issues of temptation in your life. So the solution to dealing with sin has nothing to do with uh, dealing with our physical bodies harshly. There's no place for harming our flesh or cutting ourselves in that way. The problem is that though from Adam's disobedience onwards, all who've descended from Adam, which is basically everyone in this room, we've all inherited the sinful nature and so that our mind, our feelings, our will, our appetites have all been distorted and twisted by sin. Let me give you an illustration. My wife phoned me up this week from Asda, and she was laughing. Uh, Asda's a wonderful store, clearly. But she was laughing. The reason she was laughing, she said, listen to this. And she started pushing the trolley. And, and this trolley made the most horrendous squeaking noise. And as she, as she pushed it harder, it even went louder. Uh, it's like she was killing some pig in the store. So, and my wife is very demure. She, she doesn't want to be the center of attention. And, 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 but she, everyone was staring at her. She was pushing this trolley around. And uh, she just fell about laughing. She wanted to share the joy with me. And I'm sure you've all had that experience um, where you've had that shopping trolley that has a mind of its own. You've had this? It kind of works. You can still put stuff in the trolley, but as you try and, and push it in a straight line, it keeps veering to one side. It, it keeps crashing into people, bruising people. It keeps crashing into you know, food piles and making things spill to the floor. And it, creates, it requires great effort to keep it on track, to keep it straight. And really, that is a great picture, I think, of the problem that we face. We are dodgy shopping trolleys. This is the frame that we've got. Uh, since descended from Adam, we are unspiritual. That is to say that we have sin-biased, fleshly bodies. They keep squeaking. They keep veering off track. And in fact, the more you desire to, to walk in a straight line, the more frustrating, the more vexatious you will find this tendency. And we as Christians who love God's word, we know that the law is spiritual. The main focus of this chapter is that Paul's been defending his gospel message uh, from those opponents who've been saying that the Apostle Paul is not honoring the law that God gave to Moses, that somehow he's subverting it and overturning it. And he's dealing with that challenge. 
And he says, well, look, we know, we know that the law is spiritual. He's already written in verse 12 that it is holy, righteous, and good. It shows us how we can please God in all his holiness of character. It shows us the right path. It it shows us how we can be a positive blessing to others that will do good. The law does that. The problem is not the law. And in fact, since uniting our lives to Christ, we find we have an increased desire to be obedient to the God of this book. Grace has invaded our lives. And so we, so we see Paul in verse 22 saying this, For in my inner being I delight in God's law. This was the big promise in the Old Testament that the prophets made, that God would bring about a new covenant that would not just be external, but internal, written on the hearts of his renewed people. Just move it back a slide, would you? Um, God's law, he says, is not the problem. God's law is not the problem. The problem is me. It's my fleshy, sin-infected nature. And so what he describes here, I believe, is the frustrating inner conflict of someone who's born again, united to Christ, but still living in this fleshly, sin-prone body. And as he looks at the mirror of God's law, what he sees just distresses him about himself. It confounds his mind. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do. There's a mismatch between desires and actions. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And even as he hates doing the things he does not want to do, he shows that he knows that God's law is good. But it feels like a part of him is beyond control at times. Sin still seems to win the day. And is this not part of our normal experience as Christians? We find ourselves thinking, saying, and doing things that we deeply regret. And in an instinctive moment, they kind of come out of us. There is a part of us that wants to do good, but another part of us that seems incapable of consistently following through on that. And at times, it can feel quite intense for us. Uh, like an internal war, and we can get these ingrained patterns of behavior where we feel that we are prisoners of our sinful nature, even though that is actually not the case, as we learned in Romans 6. We're going to think about some applications in a moment, but I think Paul's point here is to say that God's law is like a sat-nav. It guides us in the right direction, but it's not the petrol that will empower us to go in that direction. God's law is like a brilliant mirror that shows us what we are really like, but it has no power to change us. God's law is like an MRI scanner that that exposes what's truly going on in our bodies, but it has no power to fix us. Now, as we've been working through the book of Romans, this is what we've been learning, that, 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 that God has got good news for us, good news about His Son, that there's a way of that we can be made righteous. There's a way that we can be made right with God that's not about the way I can keep the law, but it's about trusting Jesus Christ. And so our salvation is not found in ourselves. It is found in Christ alone. 
And chapter 7, I think, is making this point that to the Jewish believers in Rome, that in the same way, not only is our salvation only bound in Christ alone, but our sanctification, the way we're going to go on in the Christian life, is not achieved by uh, our own moral effort in obedience to the law of God. In fact, the more we look at the perfect uh, mirror of the law, the more we're going to see our sinfulness and the way we fall short in the Christian life. This is actually true for the non-Christian and it's true for the Christian. God's law exposes our sin. We saw that in the first half of Romans 7. It exposes our sin. It reveals that what is sin. And in fact, because of the perverse nature of our sinful nature, it actually multiplies our sin. And it leads us to see our true spiritual state. We are unspiritual. The answer is not found in me, as verse 18 says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. And when I truly see that, it will lead me to cry out, as the Apostle Paul does in verse 24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And here's the glory of God's gospel. There is an answer, verse 25 Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a way of deliverance. There is a way of salvation. There is a way of righteousness. And it's found by looking outside of myself to the only deliverer, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the key to growth and joy in the Christian life where we still wrestle with this inner conflict in this life, is to look away from ourselves to Christ. We are powerless in ourselves. But we're going to see in Romans chapter 8, which Lord willing will come to in the new year, we're going to see how God's Holy Spirit, who connects us to the cross work of Christ, also is there to empower us to overcome this sinful desire to help us to live lives that are pleasing to God. And it's done by the work of the Spirit in faith in Christ. And that God is able to, by His Spirit, enable us to wrestle with sin and suffering and bring us through to full salvation and glory. That's what we're going to learn in Romans chapter 8. It's a glorious chapter. So come back next year to find out about it. And do you know what? You can read the chapter over Christmas. Don't, 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 waste, don't waste the time. You can get into it before then. Now, here are seven short applications uh, in the light of this chapter. Number one, the inner struggle is part of being human since the fall. Every person out there knows something of an inner conflict of wanting to do the right thing but struggling to do the right thing. It's part of our fallen humanity. And I think every human being will have different levels of awareness of this. Some people are blissfully unaware, it seems, but I think most people deep down have a sense that they are not being all that they could be. Secondly, don't be surprised that becoming a Christian will heighten this sense of conflict. See, as you read the Bible, as you come to understand 
the holy character of God, as you come to understand his righteousness as his law, as you see the sinless perfection of Christ, and compare that with yourself, well, you're going to become more aware of the problem. You're going to see more of your human sinfulness. You're going to see how dark is the evil in your own desires and actions. You know, what I find disturbing is that even in my holiest moments, I see sin in me. You know, when I stand up and pray in front of you, am I only thinking about the Lord or am I also worrying about what you think of me? Do I sound good? Will people think I'm good? Even in my holiest moments, sin infects it. That, that is the part of this inner corruption, this unspiritual fleshly nature that I'm still wrestling with. And don't be surprised that as you go on in the Christian life, that it heightens this sense of conflict. Thirdly, struggle with sin is a sign of spiritual life. Sometimes young Christians get so distressed when they see more of their sin, they think, oh, I'm, I'm probably not even a Christian. And yet they hate what they see, and they're calling out to God to change them. And what I want to say to you is if you're experiencing the inner struggle, that is actually a sign of spiritual life that you're wanting to fight against it. That you're calling out to God to help you in it. And can I tell you this? There is no secret crisis experience to a sin-free, temptation-free Christian life. There's no spiritual version of Mary Kondo. There's no convention. There's no magical steps, learning from the past that's going to take you to a new place where you're never going to struggle with sin. While you're in these bodies, this will be your experience. Those who teach sort of a, that you can reach a state of sinless perfection are deluding themselves. I think the Apostle John was dealing with this issue when he wrote 1 John and uh, he makes this point in 1 John 1 verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Charles Spurgeon, the uh, 19th century Baptist preacher, apparently was at a conference. He was listening to a man giving a testimony of how he had attained sinless perfection. And so the next morning at breakfast, he picked up a milk jug and poured it over his head. And watch the sinner's perfection dissolve away. No, the Christian life is one of ongoing confession of sin and repentance. Fourthly, don't despair, but look to Christ. Don't, dis don't be despairing about this inner conflict. The point is to look away from yourself to trust Jesus. Christ who paid the penalty for your sin. Christ who has uh, defeated the enslaving power of sin. And who has given you his Holy Spirit to enable you to grow in grace. The inner conflict is there to cause you to look out from yourself and look to Christ. The Dundee pastor, Robert Murray McShane, um, wrote this. For every look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. That's wonderful advice. 
If you look at yourself, you're going to despair. So for every look at yourself, make sure you've taken at least 10 looks at Jesus. And he writes about this in this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Quoting Jeremiah 17, 9. And he says this. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there'll be room for There'll be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. See, the Christian life is a life of faith. And faith means going outside of yourself. There's nothing innately good within. Stop looking in your navel. There's nothing there but a bit of fluff. Look to Christ, not just for your justification, but for every blessing of God's grace. There is no fruitfulness apart from Christ. Martin Luther put it, put it this way, all our good is outside of us, and that good is Christ. Fifthly, this inner conflict feeds our future hope. When you experience this conflict, I want you to be reminded that this spurs you to look forward. Think about that question again. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God. God has sent us a deliverer. And that deliverer is coming back again. And on that day, we're going to get to swap these fleshly, sin-prone bodies for a glorious, sin-free, resurrection body, just like Christ's resurrection body. And on that day... All the inner conflict will go. I love that verse from Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Sixthly, awareness of this inner conflict should spur our our love and our care for fellow sufferers. The problem with um, looking to our own obedience and our abilities to keep laws in our own lives, the rules that we think are, are, are good rules for holiness, is that we're very selective. We pick the ones that we're good at. And uh, we're good at keeping those ones. And then we see these people who, gosh, you struggle with that? That's pathetic. I don't struggle with that. I'm very good at keeping that. Why, why, what's, pull yourself up. What's, what's your problem? And the problem with the selective law keeping is it, it's very corrosive for Christian community. But when we have a good look into the fullness of the law of God, and, and we see honestly the, the sin and evil that is, is within, actually this should spur us to humility and love and care for fellow sufferers. When we see other people doing things that, uh, where their sinners comes out and uh, maybe 
splurges over us. And uh, instead of going, we should be thinking, oh, yeah, I know, I know. This understanding will help us to reach out in love and care for fellow sufferers. And I think that's one of Paul's purposes to the church in Rome, between these Jewish believers and these Gentile believers, to help them to get along together, to understand this problem of the inner conflict is one that humbles us, puts us all to Christ, and unites us in common feeling and understanding. So let's be patient with each other. Do you know what? You're in a church that's not full of perfect people. This may shock you. You haven't got a perfect pastor. You're not shocked. I've been here 10 years. I've probably irritated all of you in some of my sinful words or attitudes, and I'm sorry for that. But that's the truth. This is a church of very flawed people. Uh, If you're visiting us today, I hope that doesn't shock you. I hope you feel at home. This is church, and so let's show this love and care for each other when we fail. Lastly, seventhly, it's very Puritan this, seventhly, awareness of this inner conflict should actually spur our witness. I I love it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where Paul writes to Timothy, he's warning him about uh, teachers who um, don't really understand the right use of God's law. And he's warning them about them. They're they're, they're teaching falsely about the law of God. They don't seem to understand that the law is there to bring about conviction of sinners. And then he gives testimony of his own sin. I was a blasphemer. I was a violent man. And then he comes up with this wonderful phrase. But here is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, the chief of sinners. Now, he doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. This very much fits with this Romans 7 understanding. This understanding that actually there's this ongoing inner conflict in his life. He knows the sin that he is wrestling with. In fact, he feels he's the chief of sinners. And guess what this does to him? This spurs him with great hope and optimism to take the gospel out to the rest of the world. Because he knows how terrible he is, and yet God had mercy on him. And so actually, he's somewhat of an object lesson to the rest of the world. If God could show mercy on me, he can show mercy for you. There's hope for you, struggling sinner. He can have mercy on you. You don't have to brush yourself up to make yourself right for God. He sent Christ into the world to save sinners. You say, well, I couldn't keep it up. I couldn't keep up this Christian life. I'm not good enough. It's not about you. It's about looking to Christ. This is the very grounds. Isn't this strange? The inner conflict should actually stir us to look up to Christ, to look out to a lost world with hopefulness, to look around at our brothers and sisters with love and understanding and mutuality. So far from being a most terrible thing, may God use this experience of the inner conflict to turn us to depend upon him. Let's pray.